to the fathers out there, happy Father's Day. Um, to the children out there, I want you to know that you made this possible. So thank you for that. Um, I want to invite our children to Children's Church so they can learn in just a more age-appropriate setting. Your teacher will meet you at the back there. And in the meantime, let's uh, open our service in prayer. Lord God in heaven, Jesus taught us to call you our Father. And what a privilege, Lord, that we get to call you that name, that we get to have that kind of a relationship with you. So, Lord, thank you for being our Father. And, uh, Lord, as we celebrate Father's Day and we remember our fathers who were good and were bad, who had strengths and weaknesses, who were very much made of clay like we are, uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given fathers, as it says in Hebrews, to discipline us and to train us. Um, but, Lord, we, we recognize that they can never measure up to who you were, who you are, rather. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you that you've given them to us and that we, um, we were raised by them. Uh, Lord, where they were right, we pray that we've learned. And uh, we, we want to honor our fathers, Lord, especially our fathers who are no longer with us, the fathers who have passed away. And, um, Lord, we, we miss them. And whatever our relationship was, that's a part of our life that's missing. And so thank you for, for their role and their example in our lives. And Lord, um, I want to thank you especially for one particular father this morning for uh, healing Ron Lafoon and bringing him back to us and restoring him to the point where he can come back to church. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to work in his body and his uh, mend his strength. Uh, Lord, thank you for the mercy that you showed him all the way through his accident, through his uh, his recovery. And Lord, we count on you continuing to bless him and, and fill him with more of your love and more of your mercy. And thank you for the example that he is to us in faith. Lord, would you be with us now as we look to your word and help us to see where it is that um, we can learn from the apostles, we can learn from the disciples. And Lord, would you feed our faith, cause us to trust you more from the hearing and the preaching of your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, so where we're at in the story is Peter and John went to the temple healed a man who was born lame, and they all went into the temple, and Peter and John were then boldly preaching Jesus Christ. And the ruler showed up and said, you're not allowed to do that. And you remember last week they were arrested, they were put in jail overnight, and then the next morning the leaders couldn't say anything. They, they couldn't stop them because the man who was healed was standing right there, and how do you argue with something like that? So they just scolded him and sent them on their way and said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Um, so that's where we ended last week. This week we get to see what was their response to that. You remember when they faced the leaders and the leaders told them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. They said, well, look, you have to decide you know, who we should obey. The Lord our God is telling us that we have to talk about Jesus. You're telling us we can't. You, you decide what you want to do in that case. We're going to continue to preach Jesus Christ and Him raised. So now what we get is kind of the behind-the-curtain scenes. Uh, what Fernando read for us, it talks about them going back to their friends, and they reported what happened. And so the sermon this morning is we're going to look at how does a church respond to persecution? What is the response? And the key to this whole section really is Psalm 2, which Ramey read for us this morning. And so the first part of this is praying Psalm 2. How do you pray a psalm? And then the second part is living in light of Psalm 2. 
So here's what I mean. So they release, they go back to their friends, they tell them what, they, uh, what had happened to them. And then in verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said. So this is a communal prayer of the church. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea that all is in them and all that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So this is their response. They start out sovereign Lord. They don't look at this opposition to the gospel and go, wow, I really wish God was in control here. It'd be really nice if we could get some reinforcements. They look at the opposition and their first response is sovereign Lord. And what we mean by sovereign is God is utterly in control. He, he, nothing gets past him. He, he didn't lose his attention span for a moment and miss this. He remains the sovereign Lord. Now, the, the Greek there for sovereign Lord is despotes, where we get the word despot. And when we talk about despots today, what we refer to is usually really overbearing, mean, evil rulers. But really what the word means is a, a monarch who is unopposed, a sole ruler who has absolute authority. Didn't necessarily mean bad back then. It just meant this is the sovereign Lord. So sovereign Lord is really a good way to translate it. That's how the church looks at God, is he is the absolute uncontested ruler of the universe. There is no legitimate opposition to God. And so that's how they address him. They look to him and they say, we have met with opposition to the gospel, sovereign Lord. And that's who they call out to. That's who we should call out to when we have opposition in our lives is sovereign Lord. Jesus, you are reigning, you're ruling, you're in charge. You are the one that we're calling on. You are in control. We'll unpack this idea a little bit more. But the next thing that they said is, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea that, and everything that's in them. Now, I know it's been a while, but do you remember back from Genesis chapter 1? When we talked about Genesis 1, I said the reason that Moses goes back to the creation story and he tells the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 the, re the way he did is he is speaking to Israelites who have just come out of 400 years in Egypt. They have been exposed to multiple gods, the god of this, the god of that, the god of the other thing. They're heading into Canaan which is an area with its own geographical God, the God who's in charge of this thing. As a matter of fact, in 2 Kings, when they're at war, the, the enemy is, is looking at Israel beating them and said, well, yeah, because their God is a God of the hills. And, and, and if we're in the hills fighting them, their God is powerful here. Let's take them down into the plains and we'll take them out because our God's more powerful in the plains. So this is the, the mindset, the ancient mindset behind the gods is there's gods of this and gods of that and gods over this and gods over that. And certain gods are more powerful in different areas. You can remember back to Genesis 1, though, what did God do? He spoke, and these things came into being. You want a plain? God said, there, there's a plain. I'm the God of the plains. You want a mountain? Mountain, rise. There's a mountain. I'm the God of the mountains. You want the heavens? Here's the heavens. I'll stretch them out at my command. I am the God of the heavens. Did your God rise out of, up out of a, a primordial ocean and create your land? I created the ocean. I created the land. I'm the God of all of this. So when we speak of a sovereign God, a God who is in charge of everything, this is where your mind should go when you think about God's sovereignty. He made the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. Which part of creation did God not do? 
He did it all. Therefore, he is sovereign God over all of them. There is no God under all of creation that God is not in charge of. There could be gods of the streams. People believe that there were stream gods called naiads or dryads or something like that. God created the stream. God created the water. God created the mountain. The stream runs down. He's God over all of those things. So this is the sovereign God in which we are addressing, and the nations are opposing him. There's opposition to this sovereign God. How can this be? Well, to unpack that, they go next to Psalm, Psalm 2. They say, who, through the mouth of our father David, who wrote Psalm 2? Well, according to these guys, David wrote Psalm 2. It was his mouth that uttered the psalm. He wrote it down. He penned it. But that's not all. It says, by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit spoke Psalm 2 through David's mouth. We talked about this earlier. We talked about this on the day of Pentecost, how they saw David as a prophet, how they saw both David speaking and the Holy Spirit speaking. It's more the same. This is a consistent hermeneutic for the early church, is the unimagined, uncontested, unlimited inspiration of the Spirit where both human beings speak and God the Holy Spirit speaks. Clearly and absolutely. And when we look at Psalm 2, that's, uh, that's how we're going to unpack it. We're going to take a look from both perspectives. What did David say and what did the Holy Spirit say? In those same exact words. So before we go any further, really what we need to do is back up now and take a look at Psalm 2 overall. Because they, don't just, they quote chapter, or, I mean, verse 1 here. But that's not the end of their thought process. The whole psalm affects the rest of their prayer, and we'll see that in a moment. So uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Um, psalm 2. It's confusing because the book is called Psalms because it's filled with psalms, but Psalms doesn't have chapters. It has psalms. So it, I, I get confused because I, I want to say Psalms 2, but it's not Psalms 2. It is the second psalm. Is that pedantic enough or what? Split that hair. All right. I just wanted to give you time to turn. Actually, I was getting time to turn as well. So let me read all of Psalm 2. Ramey read it this morning. Let me read it again just to orient our brains. And then I want to kind of not dig into it too much, but just take it apart a little bit so we can see what's going on. So Psalm chapter 2. Look what I just did. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled." Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This sounds very much like David, doesn't it? Why do the kings of the earth um, rage? Why do the people plan against him? Think about David's life. 
When David first appears on the scene in 2 Samuel, his first really big act is killing a giant. This Philistine who would come out and defy the armies of the living God. And David comes out and says, you can't speak like that about our God. Will nobody go face this guy? He can't stand. Even though he's a giant, he's not going to make it. He opposed the Philistines to their face. And he defeated them. Later on, when he's a, a military captain in Saul's army, he goes and he kills 100 Philistines. So he, he's opposed by the nations. The nations are, are opposite to him. But what happens later? Saul, decides, Saul gets jealous and decides that David is a threat. Now it's not just the Gentiles who are opposed to David. Now it's actually Israel itself. David is constantly on the flee for about 14 years or so, running from Saul and his army. He hides in one valley and Saul's on the other side trying to kill him. So who's opposed to David at that point? If you're looking at it from David's perspective, the Gentiles hate me and so do God's people. And so he's on the run. Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? That's David's perspective. You guys are on me. Where's his confidence coming from? Well, when God rejected Saul because Saul wouldn't do what God told him to do, God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse and said, anoint for me one of them to be king. And they prayed the six biggest brothers. And God keeps saying, nope, that's not him. And then David is called in from the field and God anoints him. Samuel, the prophet, pours oil on David and anoints him. Now you are the king. And it was about 14, by my count, it was about 14 years before he actually got to the throne. So that's kind of the situation for David is he's got all of this opposition and he's got this tremendous promise. You will be king over my people Israel. And he will not take a step to do that. Remember, he's in a cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And Saul leaves and he comes out and he says, Saul, look what I did. I could have killed you and I wouldn't. I won't lay my hand on you. Another time they come upon the camp, the whole camp is looking for David. Him and, and one other man go down into the camp and they steal Saul's, Saul's spear and a jar of water and call out and say, look, I could have taken your life again and I won't do it. And the reason was David kept saying whenever he was prompted, you should kill Saul, he's really after you. David swore, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. So, Saul, so the way David saw Saul was, I am not going to depose him. That's God's job. And when God deposes him, then I'll step into the role that he's given. So there's this time where David is anointed king, but doesn't ascend to the throne. And yet David's not absent. He's not vacant. He's still there. He's still engaged. He winds up saving people. So um, Nabal, his, his flocks are out being harassed by people, and David's men come and they protect him. He's still protecting Israel. He's still there with Israel. That's the picture. So doesn't that sound like Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? Why do they oppose me? I am the Lord's anointed. That, that's David. But the next part is, this is, the, this is kind of the rebellion of the nations, but the next part is God's response. How does God respond to this? He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak in his fury. Then he will speak in his fury. So you people are opposing the king that I've appointed? His response to that is, I have appointed my king. I have set him on Zion, my holy hill. 
Now, when David ascended to the throne, he first moved to Hebron, but then eventually he took over Jerusalem and established what was called the city of David. Another name for the city of David is Zion. God established his king and put him in Zion. That's what he's saying. So this is David looking back at his career and saying, God established me here. Why would you oppose me if God has anointed me? And God's response is, I have anointed David and I put him on Zion as holy hill. You need to, that, this is my response to your rebellion. Now God makes a promise to his anointed one. Verses seven through nine, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is the, the promise to God's anointed is that he will eventually rule over all of his enemies. And that's exactly what David did. David, by the end of his career as king, he had secured the nation. He had established the borders. He had defeated his foes, and he's resting. And that's why he went to the Lord and said, I'm going to build you a temple. I have, I've secured all the borders. We're done. So that's exactly what has happened, is that David has done that very thing. He, was, he is essentially ruling the nations at this point, the nations around him. He is in charge. So God has made that promise that his anointed is now in charge. But then there's still this warning, this, 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 this response of during this time is now the time to make, make peace with, with David and with Yahweh because you've opposed him, but now is the time. And so therefore the last section of the psalm says, now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And then this enormous promise, if you will come to him, then blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So as David's enemies begin to reconcile and build friendships with him, now they come under the umbrella of Israel. They, they fit underneath God's blessing of them. And so there are nations that are actually in, in peaceful relations with David, and he cares for them and he provides for them. That's David. So that sounds very much like David's career. It kind of fits. It's, it's, I don't think I stretched anything to make that work. But David's only half the equation, isn't he? This was David writing from his perspective. This is what's happened. But the Holy Spirit spoke. And so there's more to this story. So if we go back and look at it one more time, the rebellion of the nations. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. So look at how they pray. To, to understand the, the unpacking of this and how the Holy Spirit is speaking about Jesus, look at how they pray for this. They cite only verse 1. And so we'll unpack verse 1, but let's keep going and, and we'll see what's going on. So they, they say, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's the application that the church picks up. The church looks at the psalm and says, how does that apply now? In this city we're gathered together. Gathered. Circle that. Psalm 1, or Psalm 2, the kings of the earth and the rulers were gathered. So immediately you get the idea that in this city we're gathered. He looks at Psalm, they look at Psalm 2 and they say, hey, they gathered there as well. In this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Psalm 2, against the Lord and his anointed. Circle anointed. There's a connection going on here. What are they thinking? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. 
So they were gathered against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. The kings of the earth, Herod is a king, quote unquote king, and the rulers were gathered. Pontius Pilate was not a king, but he was a ruler. So both Herod and Pontius Pilate, kings of the earth, rulers were gathered, along with the Gentiles. Why did the Gentiles rage? Because the Gentiles were, were gathered together with these leaders to oppose your king. Circle Gentiles. And the peoples of Israel. So against your holy servant, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, why do the Gentiles rage and why do the peoples, circle peoples, plot in vain? They're, they're tying this song to their, their predicament. And then in the end, it says, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's not part of the psalm, but it is how they introduced the psalm in their prayer, isn't it? Through the mouth of your father David, of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit said this years ago through David. We've just prayed exactly what's been going on. This, we see that unfold right in front of us. This is obviously your plan that you had predestined. Because you wrote it in Psalm 2 and it just happened in front of us. So this is how they approach Psalm 2, is they read that psalm and they apply it to their situation. They said, this is what's going on now. So how do you pray a psalm? How do you pray a psalm? Who's the key to the way that the church prayed the psalm? Is it just them? We're, we're, the, we're the son, because God Jesus told us to pray, Father, so we must be the son, and, and they're opposed to us, so Lord, zap them. That's not the key. That's not the center to the psalm. The center of the psalm is Jesus Christ. Jesus is ascended. Jesus is the one who, in about three different places in the New Testament, is quoted as saying, you're my son, today I've begotten thee. Jesus is the key that unlocks this. He's also the bridge that ties it to us. So in this case, there is opposition to the gospel, and the church isn't surprised. It doesn't, it doesn't blow their minds. It doesn't say, well, maybe we got this wrong. Maybe we should move to another city because there's opposition and they don't like us. Instead, they rejoice and they say, Lord, this is exactly what your hand is predestined to take place. This is what was supposed to be happening. That is tremendous confidence. That's what praying a psalm in a Christ-centered fashion can do for you is you can be strengthened in your faith. You can trust God. You can say, Lord, you predestined this to happen from beforehand. And then you give us the shortcut to what's going to happen in the end. So listen how the rest of it unpacks, because that's not where it ends. They keep going. In verse 29, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed... The place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God in boldness. They continued. This is where, why we needed to look at Psalm 2 as a whole and continue with it. Look upon their threats. Lord, look at what they're doing. They are opposing, just like verse 1 said, look upon their threats. And how does God respond when he looks upon their threats? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know, that's the only place in the Bible that it specifically said God laughs. And he doesn't laugh because of human folly or because, you know, slapstick comedy or something. He laughs at enemies who say, oh, no, we're going to cast off your, your bonds. You're not in charge here. We are. His response is, oh, really? That's sweet. 
He's, he, he laughs at them. It's, it's humorous that they would think that they could do this. And so he, they asked, Lord, look on their threats. And the Lord says, he's looked on their threats. Their threats are humorous. They're, they're childish. They're, they're prankish. He holds them in derision. While you oppose me, I hold you in derision. I am opposed to you in your opposition. So the next thing they said is, grant to your servants to continue to speak. Not grant to your servants swords so that we can go in and kill them all. Not grant to your servants a high priest who will be in charge and be really favorable to us in the future. The response of the church, the, the tools that the church has been given are to speak. And what they speak is they speak about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's what they speak. So grant to your servants to continue to speak. And then in verse 7 in the psalm, it says, I will tell the decree. I will tell, I will continue to speak about what God is doing here. This message is to be spoken. It is to be announced. Then they ask, Lord, do this while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In the psalm, the psalmist says, O kings of the earth, be wise. Kiss the son. Now is the time. What they're saying is, Lord, you're doing these wonders. You don't have to do these wonders. You don't owe to these people signs and wonders, healings. You don't owe them. But remember how the, the, um, those who were opposed to Jesus responded to his disciples in the temple. They said, well, we can't deny this miracle that's happened. This guy has been lame from birth, and he's standing right next to him. What are we supposed to do with that? The response is right there. Be wise. Kiss the son. You have a tremendous testimony in this man standing before you. Lord, you've stretched out your hand to heal, to perform signs and wonders. What the psalm is saying, what the, the church picks up from the psalm is, it is now the time to be wise. Now is the time to kiss the son, to embrace the son, to turn to the son, to no longer oppose the son. Now is the time. So Lord, while you're performing these things, we're, we're, we're yelling to the nations, there is a time of mercy now. There is this open door of mercy. Please come now. Embrace the Son so that when he returns, when he comes to rule with a rod of iron, you'll be on the right side of that. And their source, uh, the source of their confidence and their faith is that promise at the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all those, including the church that just got opposed, including the church who will soon show up in the same temple courts and be beaten. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So that's the threat and the promise. There is an open door of mercy now. During this time is the time to make peace with your king, to kiss the son, to be reconciled, because there is a day coming when he returns and he will subjugate the earth. He will put everybody in their position. He will rule with a rod of iron. He will be the despot, not in a negative way, but in an absolute rule way. He will be the leader. He will be the one who makes the decisions. So what they see is they see this opportunity between now and when Jesus returns to beg people, please be reconciled, kiss the son, draw near to him. And really, if you think about this, this isn't as long ago as, as Genesis 1, but it has been a little bit. Luke chapter 19. Luke told, or Jesus told a parable there about a man who goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom. 
And as he's going, citizens from that kingdom show up behind him and they go and they, they talk to the ruler who's going to give him his kingdom and say, we don't want this man to rule over us. And then the man returns and the servants that he left, he's given money to and he said, I want you to conduct business while I'm gone. And he gives an account. They have to give an account to him of what they've done. But those citizens who came and said, we don't want him to rule over us, he orders their slaughter in front of him. That, that's exactly what's going on in this psalm is there's a time when David is going off to get his kingdom. And while he's gone, his servants need to be busy. But when he returns, his servants will be given account according to what they've done, and the nations will answer for their opposition. That's the, that's the parable that Jesus told. That's the, the message of Psalm 2. And so this is what informs all of their prayer. This is their prayer of how they approach this. Now, is this a triumphalistic prayer of we win and you guys are all in big trouble? Is this the, the prayer of a triumphant uh, victors in a battle? No, this is desperate people crying out. Uh, Tim Keller said that prayer is the victory of the lame, the ones who surrender, who say, thy will be done. That's what it means to kiss the son, is these are people who have submitted to the son. And so now they are more than victors, but they're more than victors, not because God's fighting on their side, but because they're under the king who's already going to win. So this is the prayer that the church prays in the face of opposition. Have you ever faced opposition when you share the gospel? Have you ever had people become angry with you because of that? Or worse, just go, meh, not interested? Does that ever discourage you? Imagine the opposition these guys faced. The religious leaders, the high muckety-mucks, the seminary professors who wrote all of these books have just told us to shut up about Jesus. And their response is, Lord, everything that's unfolded is exactly according to your plan. And we're just going to keep talking because now is the time because you've given us this message. So when we face opposition, when we, when we run into people who are not interested or violently opposed, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. Weep. Weep for them because you know what's coming. There's a time when the king returns and rules with a rod of iron. There's a time when he returns and his enemies are opposed and shut down. And so weep for them, but don't be discouraged by it. How many times did it take you to hear the gospel before you believed it? I lost count. I tried to figure it out one time. It was years. The mercy is still extended while the door is still open. We can continue to, to uh, pray and to preach that way. So this is how people could pray to a sovereign Lord. How people could pray God's word back to a sovereign Lord. And instead of going, well, he's got it all figured out. I mean, we're just kind of walking in the steps. They can do it with eager anticipation. So when, when we talk about praying, I've said this before, is why would you pray to a sovereign God? If he's sovereign, he knows everything that's going to happen. So are you going to inform him of something? So why pray to him? He already knows. Okay, well, the opposite of that is, why pray to a non-sovereign God? Can he actually answer your prayer? You're asking somebody who doesn't have the power to answer prayer to answer prayer. You're asking somebody who is not informed to be informed. So there's this tension in prayer. Why pray? If he's sovereign, he already knows. If he's not sovereign, why bother him? He's not going to be able to do it anyway, necessarily. 
That's not how the church looked at it, though, is it? They looked to him and they say, Sovereign Lord. And not only do they say, Sovereign Lord, you know what's going to happen. They quote back to him what he's already said is going to happen. They quote to him his own word and they say, Sovereign Lord, look what you said. Make that happen. Did Jesus promise you that he would answer every prayer of yours? Yes, he did. With one small caveat. Everything you ask in my name. Now, that doesn't mean, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not a bad thing to say. Continue to say that if you pray. But that does not mean, okay, now I've put this seal on there and you have to answer. What it means is, Lord, everything I've asked that's in accordance with your name, in accordance with your purpose, in accordance with your plan, Lord, please bring that to pass. I'm trusting you. I'm counting on you. A sovereign God, praying to a sovereign God, cements and encourages prayer because you know he can answer. And when you pray his word back to him, you know you got the answer to that prayer. You may not know how it, how it pans out. You may not be able to figure out all the little details going through it, but you can look at it and go, Lord, I know you promised that you're going to return. You promised that there is mercy. You promised that everybody who is in you is blessed. Lord, get more people in you. Gather more people into your kingdom. I trust you because you are sovereign. You are going to make this come to pass. This is sure. And then you don't even have to say it in Jesus' name at that point because you know it's in Jesus' name. You just prayed his word right back to him. There, you've got a solid answer on that. Now, that sounds triumphalistic and, you know, all happy news. The, the reality is between now and then, the fulfillment may not be easy. We're going to see the church is going to face a lot of opposition going forward. But the reason they can endure the opposition, the reason they can keep going, keep talking about Jesus, keep talking about his resurrection, keep telling people you need to trust him is because they've prayed Psalm 2. And they can look at that and say, Lord, that's our power for mission. That is our power for obedience. Lord, that's what we're banking on. You've said it's going to happen. We completely trust that you are sovereign. You're going to bring this about. Even when we're arrested and thrown in jail overnight, even when we're arrested and thrown in jail for more than a night, even when we're beaten, even when we're opposed, even when we're killed, James is going to be killed. Spoiler alert. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Maybe you've read Acts before. Um, even when you face those kind of things, you need something that's going to keep you going when you see these kind of oppositions. And Psalm 2 is that, that thing. That's what the church has just demonstrated for us. So that's praying Psalm 2. That's reading the Bible and praying it back to God. Not in a futile way, but in an expectant way. Lord, how are you going to do Psalm 2 in the Antelope Valley? How does that pan out here? Lord, how are you going to um, invite people to kiss the sun through me, through my life, through my ministry, through what I'm doing? Lord, how are you going to do that? That's where you get involved in prayer and it feels very personal because you're taking a truth that you know and applying it to yourself. So that's praying Psalm 2. Well, the other half of that is it's, it's important to then live in light of Psalm 2. Um, I was involved in a recent discussion on Twitter, and they were saying uh, doctrine is, is, uh, correct doctrine is what you need. And a gentleman on there said, well, so-and-so had correct doctrine, so-and-so had correct doctrine, so-and-so had correct doctrine, and they owned slaves, and they did this and this and this. So correct doctrine is not sufficient. Um, you can't just sit and think correct doctrine and say, well, I've got it all figured out now. It, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. 
So the question here as we look to the second half of this is, how do they live in light of the correct doctrine that they learned from Psalm 2? In other words, correct doctrine is necessary, but eventually it has to touch the ground. It has to live in your feet, if you will, not just in your head. It's got to move you. And so this is how the church responds to the promise of Psalm 2. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. Doesn't that sound like, see that? I don't even need to preach this. I can just sit down now, amen, right? But how does that connect? How, do, how, does that, how, do, how does having everything in common connect? Well, first of all, they can do this. They can say, I don't have to hold on to this thing that I have because God's sovereign. Is he going to let me perish along the way? Is he going to let me give away my inheritance so now I'm just stuck and I can't do anything? There's, there's confidence in this, this sovereign Lord to be generous. The place that this, this beautiful doctrine of the sovereignty of God finds its feet is in generosity. Generosity in preaching to the leaders whom they crucified Christ. Peter was clear about this, Christ whom you crucified. There's a generosity in not going, well, now I'm not going to talk to you. You killed my Lord. I'm mad at you. Instead, there's this generosity of spirit saying, but I have great news for you. So it, it manifests its first, itself first in the preaching of the gospel to those who are opposing him, is we want to give you something wonderful. You can be saved. You can be spared the rod of iron. You can be blessed in him. But second of all, it also works out inside. With those who we share that common bond together, we can be generous to each other. We don't have to worry about giving it all away and losing. And so that's how they live in light of this truth is there is a generosity to each other. Now, one of the things I said about the, the book of Acts is there is the descriptive, which just tells what happened, and there is the prescriptive, which says, and thus you must do. So let's ask that question here. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? And you remember the way I said we're going to suss this out, we're going to figure out whether it's descriptive or prescriptive is not, do I like it or not? Do I feel like doing it or not? Instead, what we're going to do is look through the rest of the Bible and say, does this continue to be a principle that is applied? And so um, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was their own, but they held everything in common. Descriptive or prescriptive? Both. Hot. Fooled you. It's both. It's descriptive, and this is how they did it, is they're expecting at this point in church history, they had no idea how long it would be before Jesus returned. There's an anticipation that he could return at any moment. And so they're selling their property and giving the money to the church and sharing everything in common. So there's that, that anticipation. It, it describes what they did. When you look through the rest of the New Testament, is there a command, sell everything you own and, and turn it into the elders of the church who will distribute it amongst everybody? It's just not there. It, there is, however, so, so in that sense, it's only descriptive. But there is this principle of generosity. There is this principle of take a collection and share it. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, on the first day of the week, take up a collection, and when I come, I'm going to gather that money that you have so generously donated, and I'm going to take it to the saints in Jerusalem because they're in hardship. They're in, they're in real need. So what Paul looks to them and he says, please be generous. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. There is a sense in which generosity is descriptive. 
So it may not look like this. I'm not asking you all to sell your homes and give me the money if you want to, but I'm not asking you to do that. But what I am saying is, if we trust a sovereign God who will not let us perish, who will sustain us, in whom we are blessed, then can we not be generous with each other? Can we not be giving? That, that's exactly what we're trying to do when we go to Antelope Valley College on finals week and we just stand there and hand out bottles of water. There's something missing in our world, and that's a sense of generosity. We live in the most rich nation probably that's ever existed on the face of the earth. America is just filthy rich. And one of the biggest things that's missing in our culture is generosity. When it happens, it gets noticed because it doesn't happen very often. So if we are pilgrims here, if we're ambassadors here and members of a greater kingdom, then let's take that kingdom principle and apply it here. Let's be generous. That's, that's the application of this, is we trust a sovereign God. We will be generous because he has given us so much. And so that's the idea, is this is living in response to Psalm 2. Our God loves us. He cares for us. We serve a, a sovereign God who is unopposed, who laughs at our enemies, and therefore we can be generous with our enemies and with our friends. We can give without begrudging. And so they go on, and, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace, and great grace was upon them all. Um, I've said this before. Um, it, it's kind of a theme for me. What is grace? Great grace is upon them. Does that mean that grace is this power for them to go out and perform miracles? Well, it's part of grace. What grace is, is God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. It's God's favor. It's not people's, right? They look around and the people are opposing them. So they're not looking to others to say, Does God, is God happy with me? They know that God is happy with them because they have Psalm 2 telling them. It's God's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. What did they do to deserve this? What did they do to earn God, to make God happy enough to like them? Well, Peter, for example, denied Jesus three times, swore, literally swore, cussed, saying, I don't know the man. Is that merited favor? Is there any reason at that point that Jesus should come back and go, hey, Peter, it's okay now? That's unmerited. It's not earned. It's God's unmerited, and it's his favor. What does it mean to favor somebody? Complex word. Could mean you look like him. You favor your father. Um, or it could mean positive disposition towards. Do me a favor. Do something nice for me based on nothing. I've got no way to repay you. Favor is God's positive disposition towards you. It, you could say it's his love towards you. So great grace was upon the disciples. God's unmerited favor rested on the disciples, and therefore it manifested itself in the bold proclamation, in the signs and wonders that he gave them to do, because his favor was working through the world to bring more people to Jesus Christ. So that's the situation. Now, this is what, how it plays out. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet to distribute to each as they had need. That's that trusting, generous spirit. Don't miss this little point. They sold lands or houses and brought the proceeds. Now, on the day of Pentecost, there were people from all over the Roman Empire. But there were also people in Jerusalem, right? Jews are selling the promised land and giving the money to the church. 
They sold their ancestral home, their promised land, this piece of real estate that they were given, they sold that. Now, you might think, well, the day of Jubilee means they get it back in, in 70 years, right? It just reverts back to them. There's no evidence in the Bible that they ever practiced the year of Jubilee. God establishes it. He says every seven of sevens, you give everything back to where it belonged. No place in the Bible do we see that happening. These folks sold the promised land. They recognized the promised land was too small. It's too tiny of an inheritance. We stand to gain something more. What did, Jesus, what did Psalm 2 tell them? That his, his, his son is going to come and rule over all the nations. Not just Israel. All the nations. And, and when they began their prayer, who did they pray to? The God of Israel? The God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that's in them. So they're willing to sell the promised land because they say, we got a bigger inheritance. It's not that we don't want an inheritance. It's, this, this just ain't big enough. This isn't what God had in mind. So they sell all of that. And they take the proceeds from those sales and they lay them at the apostles' feet and the apostles distribute to whoever had need. So everybody's needs are met. And then we, we're introduced to this, this person at the end. His name is Joseph. But they call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I would love to be called the son of encouragement. That would be so neat to be, to be identified. The, the primary characteristic, when you think of Joseph, what do you think of? Oh, man, encouragement. He is such a light. The son of encouragement is the one that focuses on it here at the end. Now, Barnabas is going to be really important towards the middle of the book. He, he's going to have a strategic role. And so we're introduced to him now. And we're introduced to him in the most positive light. He, he is just this kind of guy. So he's a Levite from Cyprus. And he sold a field that belonged to him. And he laid the money at the apostles' feet. This son of encouragement was also a son of generosity. And he gave. And so that's the, the perspective that these guys have on it. Even a son of encouragement, even somebody who would be the person you would want to come and sit at the table with you because they were going to encourage you and you're, you're going to walk away feeling so much better. Even he is filled with this generosity. And it's all in light of Psalm 2 being applied to their situation. They're, they're, they're trusting the Lord in that. So Barnabas is going to come back to us. We'll get him more. But we're introduced to him now in this just wonderful way. It's just such a, a great thing. And um, I just love his name. I kind of wish I had named my kids Barnabas now. Because <laughs> son of encouragement. Although I named my son Benjamin, which means my son who will be fortunate. So that's not bad. Um, so that, that's how you pray. And this is how not only do you pray, this is how you live in light of the promises of, Acts, of uh, Psalm chapter 2 is you live in light of that, reminding yourself daily, I serve a sovereign God. I serve a Lord who's risen. God has established his son on his holy hill. Jesus is not beamed out and, and missing in action. Jesus is sitting on his throne even now and he's ruling. This is the light in which I pray. But that's not sufficient. It's also the light in which you walk. It's the light in which every day you're trusting the Lord and saying, Lord, I know I can trust you for these things. And so if it manifests yourself in recognizing a need and meeting a need, then you can do it with the confidence that I lose nothing. The promised land isn't sufficient. The paycheck isn't sufficient. The, the, the 401k isn't sufficient because I inherit the world. It's necessary 
but it's not sufficient. So be filled with that hope and see if it doesn't manifest itself in your heart in a generous spirit, because you know a God who, who can fill all those needs, and he delights to. So I want to ask you this week, when you start your prayer time, start with those two words, sovereign Lord, despot, absolute ruler, and think of that as, as your anchoring point in your prayer. And then remember what Jesus said. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. So the despot, his, his relationship to you, his disposition towards you, is a loving Father. And see if that doesn't give you confidence and boldness in prayer. See if that doesn't make you feel like you could do anything. If God's on my side, if I'm in line with him, if I'm doing what he's promised, Let's go. Let's take on the nations. God's the one who's going to answer for that. Jesus is coming again to rule. And in light of that, we want to announce to the nations, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all of those who find themselves in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for being our father. Uh, Lord, we thank you for being the despot of the universe, the absolute, uncontested, uncontestable ruler of all things. And Lord, now while the nations rage, while the Gentiles plot in vain, we know, Lord, that you're laughing, not in a sense of meanness or, or bitterness, but Lord, that you are responding to the, the, the notion that your created beings can throw you off. They can push you aside. Lord, would you continue to use your church just as you did in Acts chapter 4? Lord, would you use us here in Lancaster, in Palmdale, in the Antelope Valley? Lord, would you use us in that same way to call people to the blessing of being in Christ, to remind them that there's a day coming when he's, he will re return and rule with a rod of iron, to escape that day now, kiss the sun, be blessed. Lord, use your church, use us here. Give us boldness to speak. Give us words to say. Give us faith to trust you. And Lord, I pray that our theology, our doctrine would reach all the way to our feet and we would live in accordance with it. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.